Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another scream. edition of the Survival Podcast. As you always, let me achieve the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Tuesday. September the 8th, 2009, as we rock into fall. Even though it's becoming fall, it's going to be 96 degrees here, folks, for the next three or four days. And then we're going to go down into the 80s, and hopefully we'll stay there and stay down from there after that. Uh, Once in a while I mention the news. Not the news, the uh, weather, because I think it's what friends do, and I consider the guys that listen and the gals that listen to the show to be my friends. And on the weather, let me tell you what this morning was like. I... uh, Stepped outside expecting it to be rather warm outside, and uh, sometimes in the morning that feels good. It was quite cool, actually. It was in the low 70s. And uh, I put a couple lettuce plants in the ground. I'm trying to nurse them through this last bit of heat and get a head start on them. And they look pretty happy this morning as it's a broccoli plant. So uh, fall is coming. Uh, before we talk about today's show, today's going to be a listener question show. I got questions on all kinds of things. I got questions on firearms. I got questions on gold and silver. I got questions on gardening. Uh, I got questions on how to heat your house. I got great questions today from great listeners. Uh, but before that, we're going to do our housekeeping section. And um, on Ask Clowns and Heroes, it looks like it is going to bite the dust. We won't have an Ask Clowns and Heroes daily segment anymore because it doesn't look like it's what you guys want in mass. And we'll talk about the numbers from the poll later this week week. But what it does look like people would really like is for me occasionally to mention an ass clown when an outstanding ass clown presents themselves. And in this case, it will be the Boy Scouts of the United Kingdom. Yes, the Scouts of the United Kingdom, the UK Scouts, are the ass clowns. And not the Scouts themselves, but the people overseeing, running, and regulating the Scouts. And uh, they are an ass clown, and when you hear this, you're going to understand what a big ass clown they are and why this warrants message, even with you know only doing it as required. The Boy Scouts of the United Kingdom have decided that uh, Boy Scouts no longer need to carry pen knives when they go out in the woods and stuff. No more pen knives. Because they're worried about knife crime in the United Kingdom. Do you know why people get stuck up and robbed and and assaulted with knives in the United Kingdom? Because no one has a freaking gun. So they're going to make sure that those, you know, those Boy Scouts, I can't tell you how many times I've been out walking down the street, I felt perfectly safe until I saw a Boy Scout with a penknife. This is the ludicrous, asinine stupidity, folks. This is why you have to say to our government here in this country right now, to hither thou shalt come and no further. You are done. You go no further. Because this is 20 years in our future right now, folks, if we let this crap continue. No pen knives. This is an uh, article from the uh, UK Telegraph. I'll put a link to it in today's show notes. And then this is just asinine, too. I I don't even understand this. It doesn't even make sense. It's like the last four sentences in this article, just kind of as an aside notes, that some school has been banned from giving away goldfish at, like, their fall festival or whatever it is. 
because of uh, animal rights activists that are upset that a lot of goldfish die, you know, when you put them in little bowls and people throw ping pong balls at them or whatever. How the hell these two things are related, I don't know. But, folks, you, all you've got to do is look at Europe and the U.K., and that's our future if we don't hold the line where we're at right now. Enough politics for today. Let's talk about the housekeeping. First, I want to welcome a new sponsor, and uh, I want to note, again, that our sponsors all have to go through the approval uh, process, and these guys went through the approval process, no problems, and they are sqaexperts.com, sqaexperts.com, and they have some of the coolest body armor equipment I've ever seen, including an off-body ballistic shield that is just awesome. You really need to check out their site. If you know anybody in law enforcement, tactical entry teams, uh, military that that, uh, deals with stuff like this, or you just want uh, ballistic defense for your own home, check this stuff out. It is really, really cool stuff. Uh, next one is ready-made resources. Uh, these guys have everything you could possibly need as a prepper, from 12-volt products to food storage products to uh, wilderness survival gear, you name it. Ready-made resources has it. Make sure to get their solar catalog. I think you'll really like that. And uh, on another note, make sure you get involved in our forum. Please join our forum. Um, I think you can learn a lot. You can make some great friends, and it's amazing to me what that community has turned into. To find our form, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on form, and uh, sign up, register, and join. We're friendly folks. You are welcome to join us. And last but not least, if you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade and get exclusive content available only to members, uh, including over $60, actually over $70 now of retail value you on day one, which will more than cover your first year's membership. And with that, let's get on to the main topic of today's show, start answering some of your questions. Um, first one's an interesting question, not one I really think about a lot, but the person basically says, if I'm buying gold and silver coins, how do I make sure that they're real? How do I make sure that they're legitimate? And he says, also he notes that he's from Australia and he doesn't usually get shipments from the United States. Okay, well that's really two questions in one. So let's start out with the first one. How do we make sure that our gold and silver coins are legit? Well, first of all, if you're buying things like in the United States, and I'll cover the Australian thing in just a second, silver eagles or gold American eagles from a reputable dealer, it's almost a non-issue. It's uh, it's not very profitable business for someone to try to counterfeit gold or silver coins with uh, no real big numismatic value. Uh, the things that you want to really watch out for with coins are things like, um, I don't know, somebody getting a coin graded in MS-70 uh, by the uh, grading service, PCGA, and uh, somehow figuring out how to open the capsule and putting an MS-66 in the MS-70 case and passing it off as an MS-70. That might be one thing you might have to worry about. Um, but with counterfeit coins, generally what you're doing is you're looking at people that are counterfeiting high numismatic value, high collector value coins. It's not very profitable at all to try to counterfeit silver coins in particular, because it's pretty hard to uh, to fool somebody into thinking the coin's made out of silver when it's not. You're going to have to use some silver, and it gets very laborious and expensive. So so I wouldn't worry too much about that. If you really are worried, you can get what's called a jeweler's cloth. And if you ever came across something like a brass coin plated in gold, um, rubbing it briskly with a jeweler's cloth will take the uh, gold plating off, and you'll be able to see the brass underneath it. That's one thing you could do there. So 
That's about it with coins. It's just not that big a risk unless you're buying a $5,000 coin. And if you are, then you should have an expert look at it for you, honestly. Now, where counterfeiters, I guess you want to call them, or scam artists do uh, takeovers, they'll do things like they'll go out and get a, um, a kilogram bar of gold and go in through the side and hollow out the bar and then fill that back in with lead and then plug that hole back up. They usually don't mess around with one-ounce bars or anything, but the larger bars, it's it's something that, you know, uh, it really needs to be weighed before you purchase it if you're going to be buying that kind of quantity. Again, I think I would go through some kind of very reputable expert if you're going to buy that kind of quantity. If you stick to buying things in the ounce to 10-ounce range, though, you're just, in most situations, going to be able to tell if anything funny is going on. And uh, since I don't recommend numismatic value for your coins, uh, in other words, high collector value for your coins, uh, to me it's a non-issue. If you're going that route, again, you get an expert to look at anything you buy when you're spending that kind of money. Now, Australia. Um, what I would tell you is don't worry about American uh, silver eagles and American gold eagles in Australia. Go with your uh, your local bullion coin, which I think is a kookaburra for your silver and a, a kangaroo for your gold. And I would just buy from a reputable Australian dealer, dealer reputable Australian coinage, and I uh, wouldn't worry about it. So that answers that one. Here's the next one, and I thought long and hard about this. I really almost didn't answer this one because I try not to get political in this show unless there's a reason that directly applies to preppers. But I guess a lot of my folks that listen to this show do have children that are in school and they send them to school and they're worried about it. So as a prepper sending your kid to school, how do you address this? And basically somebody wrote me and said, Jack, what do you think about this speech that the president's going to give? And it actually happens to be today that he's going to give it. Um, I'll tell you what, I never had a problem with the speech per se, because I didn't know what the guy was going to say. And I think that we're way overreacting when we say that the President of the United States shouldn't speak to our school children. And so I waited to see or hear the speech. And the White House has the speech printed out today on their website. And I scanned it. And you might find something in there horrific, but in my scan of it, I didn't find any indoctrination of our children from Obama. I don't like it. It feels wrong to me. But I think that that the uh, conservative right, as usual, have massively overreacted to it. We're going to look like a bunch of idiots at the end of the day. I almost wonder if the whole thing was done to make us look stupid. And um, the big thing I had a problem with, if you never saw the outline, there there was a handout that went to the schools. And there was one thing in that handout that bugged me, and I think it's what bugged a lot of people, and it was children should write themselves a letter about how they can help the president. That bugged me. Of course, when we found it, they changed it, so it's not there anymore, so it's a moot point. Now, here's here's how I really feel about this if you're a concerned parent. Number one, don't keep your kids home from school today, which is probably said this too late because uh, you've already had to make that decision by the time the show goes live. But um, I would not keep my kids home from school today. I would talk to them about the speech. You cannot shelter your children from anything out there. So you might as well let them be exposed to it and discuss it with them, as long as it's not something that's going to horrifically damage them. And hearing somebody else's political view, even if you think it's wrong, will not damage your child. All right? Being if they're if they're required to answer a certain way on an opinion on a test, then you get involved. Otherwise, let them hear it and discuss it with them. Use it as an opportunity. Number two, I don't think your kids are going to pay attention to them. I, I think kids consider presidents stuffy, boring, and old, and 
and uh, they're going to be waiting for him to shut up so they can go back to class or go to a recess or whatever. And I think that you're going to say, what did you hear the president say today? And you're going to go, nothing. And you're going to go, come on, tell me. Oh, just to work hard in school and stuff. And I think it's pretty much what most kids are going to take out of this. What you need to be vigilant for is what are your ass-clown teachers in your school that are Obamites going to do with this? Uh, so I would watch the individual schools, and I would judge the individual schools on their individual merits, and I wouldn't so much worry about this. You asked, you got my opinion. All right, let's go on to something a little more practical for preppers. Um, guy says I have a, a flask with some scotch in my bug-out bag. Scotch, not butterscotch, but scotch, scotch whiskey. And... Um, he actually says one of his friends said that they would prefer or recommend that he keep uh, grain alcohol, high-proof grain alcohol, like Everclear, uh, instead of scotch, because it has not just can it be added to something to spike it to make it drinkable, you know, make it a little bit of an adult beverage, but since it's so high in alcohol, it can be used as a disinfectant for medicinal purposes, it can be used for fire starting, etc. I don't have any problem with that, uh, but the bigger question was how do you, you know, would you please address alcohol and bug out bags in the first place. Um, this is one of those questions that, uh, that that'll be a never-ending debate if you worry about whether there's a right or a wrong answer for it. I think that most people that are social drinkers uh, will probably eventually decide to put a flask in their uh, bug out bag. I think that most people that think drinking is the devil will not under any circumstances. And if they need alcohol, they'll carry, you know, rubbing alcohol and they'll even ignore the barter value. And I think there's a lot of people in the middle that eventually will, you know, kind of gravitate one way or the other. Just decide it's not really that important. Um, for me personally, I think that there's a huge value in having maybe eight ounces of uh, distilled spirits in your bug out bag. Because you may end up in a situation with a really panicked, freaked out person, and sometimes giving them a shot of whiskey, even mixed in something, shuts them the hell up. It shuts them the hell up long enough so you can figure out what the hell's going on. And there's times where maybe your nerves are shot, and a drink actually calms the nerves. And I'm not talking about sucking down the eight ounces. I'm talking about sitting back, relaxing, and taking a shot of whiskey. And I know some of you don't like that, but I'll tell you what. Um, I've been in situations where a, a quick stiff one, as they say, um, calms the nerves and lets you think. Now, going for one or two more may impair your ability to think, and you shouldn't do it. But, hey, you're an adult. You make your own decisions. I think there's a huge barter value there as well. Um, now, on the grain alcohol, personally, I would say if you have scotch in your bug out bag, it's because you like it. So if you want to add grain alcohol, as long as there's room, get yourself another flask and add the grain alcohol. Don't substitute one for the other. Um, I do not recommend carrying beer or wine in a bug out bag because it's just diminishing returns on bulk and size and weight. If you're going to carry anything, I recommend something like uh, a scotch or a tequila or a vodka or something like that. And again, or a brandy, if it's something that you personally enjoy or don't have a problem with. If you have some religious reason or ethical reason for abstaining from alcohol, don't do it. Um, personal choice. That's the best I can do on that one. Um, next one, a guy says... Uh that I talk about neighborhood watches a lot. They don't have a neighborhood watch, but what they had as a list, there's about 50 homes on their street. They basically had this list running with everybody's name and phone number on the street. Since the last time it's been updated, um, there, uh, there's been some new people moved in. Phone numbers have changed, things like that. Um, so it's time to update the list. He, but what he wants to know is would it be reasonable or acceptable to ask for things like cell phone numbers, 
email addresses and um, occupations for the list so that if something happens and you know that you know you need someone to get trees off your street because uh, a storm came in and blew a bunch of trees down it might be nice to know that the guy at the end of the street's a tree surgeon if you couldn't tell by the big truck in his uh in his, in his front yard. Uh, I'm sorry, folks, I'm distracted by a constable and a big rack and just interesting things when you mobile podcast. Anyway, um, you know, if you couldn't tell that, it would be good to know or that someone is a computer programmer uh, if we were under a cyber attack or something. You know, just there's all kinds of, or to know that somebody has medical skills if we have a lot of injuries in a neighborhood. It would make a lot of sense to, to be able to say, well, we should contact so-and-so and so-and-so for this particular issue. Maybe they should be deferred to in this because they have more experience with it or to know that maybe you have a law enforcement officer. There's all types of occupations that in individual shit at the fans would be good to know about. Firemen, you name it. I think it's completely reasonable. I hate to say this, but I think out of the 50 people on your street, the people who would most likely get upset about being asked for the information would be the preppers. Because we have this paranoia that Big Brother's out to get us and the black helicopters are coming and we better put the foil ads on. And I think the people that would get the most offended by being asked for this information would be preppers if they didn't feel they had a choice or were involved. So this is what I would do. I would create forms to update this list with, and I would take the initiative to be the person updating the list. I would do the following. I would ask for the person's name, address, phone number at the top say that it's highly recommended, but it's optional that you participate in a little form that you're going to print out. The, the purpose of this is, if there's ever an emergency, that everybody in the neighborhood can get in touch with each other. I would also say that now below, I would have a list of the other fields. Occupation, emergency backup phone numbers, cell phone numbers, things like that. And say these are completely and totally optional, but may help us if something goes wrong in the neighborhood, right? And you're away from home. In other words, it might be good if I had your cell phone number, Tom, if your house burns to the ground and you're not here when it happens. So I can call you and let you know that you have a problem that needs to be dealt with. Okay? The other thing that I would do is say that you, I would put in this form that I don't want to be the sole person responsible for keeping this stuff updated, and I would ask for people to help. If you'd like to volunteer to be a community leader and make sure that you have extra copies of the information, please let me know. And I would say that anybody that wants a final compiled list is free to get one. Just let me know, and I'll send you one. And I think that will get you a lot more buy-in. I think it's a great idea. I think some people will tell you to pound sand. Fine. And when they do, say, that's okay. It's completely optional. This is just something we're doing as a neighborhood. If you change your mind, here's my number. Let me know. I live in that house over there right there. And that's what I would do. But I'll tell you what. I hate to say it. But the people that are the most prepper-minded are initially the ones that, you want me to put my name on a list? Yeah, of your freaking neighborhood so that your neighbors know who you are. So that if something goes wrong, you can all work together instead of freaking out. And uh, if that's you, if you would freak out if your neighbors asked you for that, I suggest you find yourself a very remote bug-out location and go there and stay there because, frankly, you're not really suited for community living at all. 
and you're just not understanding the stability of your neighborhood is the most important thing to the safety and security of your family. If that bends anybody the wrong way, I'm sorry. I bend people the wrong way all the time. Do what you want with my answer. Uh, the next one is a person that says, what would I recommend for... So I could read my own handwriting there for a second as I look out of my peripheral vision at it. Um, wants to know what I think of things like Crimson Trace lasers on carbines and handguns. Are they worth the investment or are they just cool guy stuff? Um, I don't think I'd gravitate either side of that one fully. Um, I personally don't have any laser sights on any of my weapons, and I don't feel the need for them, and I don't think they're worth the money. And if I see, I can't say they're worth the money because I'm not poor, and I could have bought one and I didn't, which means I obviously don't think they're worth the investment for me personally, so I can't tell you you should spend your money that way. In other words, I never recommend you spend your money on something that I'm not already spending my money on. All right? I'll tell you what I think of it and what I think the positives and the negatives are, but I can't say I, I think it's worth the money. I do think they're more than cool guy stuff, though. I mean, honestly, uh, being able to put a dot on somebody, that makes it very clear to them that if they don't do what you're asking, they're going to get a bullet in that dot. Um, that alone has some value. Uh, and and be, having the ability maybe to not shoot and to be sure of your target if you shoot. So I think there's something to that. I, I would tell you this, though. At ranges for home defense, right, domestic defense, situations like that, I, I think it's uh, it, it takes you longer to find the dot than to just point the gun and pull the trigger uh, if you train yourself right. So I think that, if anything, it would slow down shot times. Um, all these things that we see on TV where the guy's got the girl and he's got the knife to her throat and, you know, he says back off or I'll cut her throat or I'll shoot her and the guy puts the red dot on his head. You know, I, I don't know where it's ever happened, folks. And if it has, you tell me. You let me know. I, that that common Hollywood scenario of the guy with his arm around the person and the gun to the head and back off or I'll shoot him, I've actually never seen it in real life ever happen. So I don't know how much value there is. I know there's been hostage situations and things like that. But, you know, the guy coming out of the bank or in, in your, your, uh, your rec room with your wife doing that, I, I just don't know how, how likely that actually is. And I'll tell you what, at 15 feet in my house, if you do it to me, you're getting your cap peeled anyway. I don't need a laser dot. I also think in the darkness, there's an inherent weakness of the laser that it gives away your position. I guess a light does that too, but a light is very advantageous in that. So it's uh, it's not something I have a lot of experience with. It's not something that I will really definitively say one way or the other. All I'll tell you is it hasn't been worth the investment for me. They are cool. Uh, there's a definite cool factor to them. And I don't have a problem with sometimes owning something because it's cool. I don't know that they're the most practical self-defense item. And I'll tell you this. I see police officers driving around Arlington and Grand Prairie in very expensive souped-up cars with very expensive computer systems with really nice Glock handguns. And I don't see any of them carrying uh, laser grips. So I'm not saying cops don't do it anywhere. I'm telling you the two police departments that I have a lot of interaction with because of where I live live, uh, I've never seen them choose to carry laser grips, and I think that if there was a real advantage to that for handguns, I think there's uh, enough money going into those organizations uh, that our law officers would by and large be doing it today, and they're not, so that tells you something.
Now, a lot of our tactical entry team type people and SWAT teams and all, they are using laser sights and specific weapons for specific reasons. So there's obviously a tactical advantage for them in certain situations. My question to you, though, is are you using your AR-15 to defend your home, or do you plan on doing tactical entries? And odds are that you don't plan on doing tactical entry, so that kind of mitigates that to a degree. Let's go on and take the next question. And again, folks, traffic's crazy today, so if I sound a little distracted, that's why. Oh, this is a good question. This is a great question. person writes me and says, hey, look, I've been um, searching all my coins for silver coins, and I'm actually finding still some silver coins in circulation. That's awesome, because I haven't found a silver coin in circulation for a long time, except in one place, and I'll I'll tell you guys how I found them in in a little bit, and this is kind of neat. But she was telling me, or he was telling me, I don't remember if it was a man or a woman that wrote this question, but that basically you can tell by the way the coin looks before you even check the date. And they're right. And you can't, I can feel, you can put a silver quarter and a, a, you know, a cupro nickel quarter in my hand, and I can feel the two of them and tell you the difference. I don't think they're that hard to identify. I think it's part of why they got picked out so fast. But what they wanted to know is what about pre-64 nickels? Is a pre-64 nickel, like a pre-64 quarter or dime or 50-cent piece, um, is it silver? The answer is no. Uh, the nickel has been uh, copper uh, core nickel covering uh, since its inception. It's always been made that way, still made that way, except for a few years. And they are pre-64, but not all the pre-64 years. It was 1942 to 1945. Those are your, that's the time to look for your nickel, 1942 to 1945. And um, during that period of time, the nickel was made of 35% silver along with manganese and one other thing. And the reason was to save copper for the war effort. And uh, truth be told today, it was to make lots and lots of coils so that they could make a nuclear bomb. That's what all the copper was going for. That's why I started needing the copper as early as 42, early in 42. So if you have a nickel from 1942 to 1945, odds are it is a silver war nickel with 35% silver. You won't find a lot of those out there. Uh, that was known, very well known, uh, when everybody started hoarding the silver coins of 64, that those silver nickels were out there as well. Uh, you are more likely to find them, I guess, because um, they're not really easy to tell. They're not like a silver quarter where you can almost see it from across the room and go, that's a silver quarter. So they're out there, but that's all you're looking for is 42 to 45. And if you do find them, all you're looking at is 35% silver. I don't think they'll ever be really good barter uh, in a shit at the fan or anything like that, like a silver quarter, because not as many people know about it. It's not as obvious. Uh, it doesn't have the, 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 the 90% silver content. So I would look at them as a curiosity, a source of silver if you find them on a good price or something. Uh, but I do not equate them to uh, U.S. currency pre-64 uh, dimes, quarters, 50-cent pieces, and uh, silver dollars. Here's another great, great question. I've talked about this before, but you know, I'll talk about it again because it was asked. Uh, basically, the question is... Once you move to a bug out location, if you permanently relocate, like I talk about doing, I might my place up in uh, the remote mountains of Arkansas, and my goal is to eventually relocate there. 
And the guy says, what do you do then? Do you look for another secondary bug out location, an additional place, or do you just become a happy ant and uh, go on with the philosophy of modern survivalism and stick to your bug out location and say, hey, uh, since this was my plan to fall back to in the first place, it doesn't get no better than this where I'm going to stay. And my answer to that is it's up to you. I don't think there's a wrong answer to that question. If you have a good, solid, remote location uh, that you would have considered a bug out location while you were living in uh, urban America and you fall back to it permanently by choice, not by, uh, by requirement, and uh, somebody brought up something on the forum recently. I'm going to do a show about this. Basically, maybe you decide that you're going to prep as retirement. That's your retirement plan. Instead of becoming a 70-year-old man on Social Security, you're going to be a 40- or 50-year-old man and woman um, on a prepper lifestyle for the rest of your life, living life as you choose, and you go out to your bug-out location to make that happen. Do you stop there? Um, for me, the answer is going to be no. I will have another location. Exactly how, what, where, I'm not sure yet. Uh, it may be as crazy as this sounds. It may initially be a little RV lot uh, somewhere here in Dallas-Fort Worth to act as a secondary location. There would obviously not be a good uh, bug-out location, but it will be a secondary place I could go if I had to. Uh, Which, remember, we don't always bug out because of disaster. Sometimes we bug out because of financial requirements, which we can no longer pay for our home or what have you. So there are other reasons a person would leave where it's not necessarily you have to get to a remote location. It might just be any secondary location that's easier to maintain. But I would probably do that for the benefit of my wife so that she can come down here and visit our family anytime she wants to. It'll be really cheap to do. We're going to buy a nice little 22-foot pull-behind RV trailer sometime soon anyway. We're looking for a used one right now. Uh, About the only reason I haven't bought it yet is I really don't have a place to keep it unless I went ahead and put it up in Arkansas. That doesn't seem to make any sense right now. Uh, But I might do it anyway because there's a lot of good deals out there. So I will do that. Uh, We'll maintain maybe a lot here that we can use this an address and have a Texas address. Uh, I won't really say exactly why I want to do that, uh, but I do. Uh, additionally, though, I think I will look for a remote piece of land somewhere more remote in Arkansas within two hours or less of my home. Uh, it will officially be a deer camp or a hunting camp, but I will make some improvements on it, and it could be a yet another fallback location. So that's with my resources, with my timeline, uh, with my lifestyle. That's what makes sense for me. I would tell you that I don't care where you live. I don't care if you live on top of a mountain in the middle of the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana. It always makes sense to have a secondary location. That doesn't mean owning one. That might mean that you talk to Uncle Tom, who lives in New Jersey, that you guys agree to uh, to provide a place for each other in the event of a need or a necessity or something happening. Uh, and it might not be a good idea for your bug out location to be in New Jersey uh, if you're in Montana. That might be a bit far to get to if New Jersey is held together. I think that would be one of the first places I would try to get the hell out of, or New Jersey uh, and the urban areas of California. I think those two places in particular are on the edge of falling apart right now. So I just pulled that out of my butt. Maybe it was the wrong location. But I think it makes sense for you to always have another place to go. Even if it's just by agreement. Even if it's, I have $2,000 in cash um, and uh, standing reservations at a hotel that I know I can stand for two months. 
uh, or it's, I have an RV in an RV lot somewhere. It always makes sense to have someplace else to go because you don't know when you're going to have to leave. I don't know that I would mortgage your entire future to make it happen. In fact, I know that I would not. Uh, but I would always have at least two locations to go to. Uh, that's just my personal opinion, though. And remember, you're uh, free to disagree with me. And please do so if you uh, feel the need. If you disagree with that or you disagree with anything you're hearing today, hey, post it on my blog in the show notes. Tell me where you disagree. Maybe I'll even answer you. Um, but this is all about, folks, all about you. Your survival plan is more important than mine. That's one of my core tenets. If you don't believe in what you're doing, you're not going to do it. All I can do is give you kind of my roadmap, my advice, and uh, hope that you can use it to build the type of life that you're looking for. Here's another great question. person says, um, how do you keep your remote bug out location safe when you're not there? And he said, I've already mentioned having a neighbor that can keep an eye on it. I'll tell you what, I think it's the only way to be. I think if you're going to have a remote bug out location, you need to pick a place that's not completely remote. Because uh, no matter how remote you think it is, if you have a place up in the sticks, that there's no one around. And then if I showed up on a Wednesday in the middle of the week and you didn't happen to be there, I could spend several hours destroying what you have and no one would know. That's what's going to happen. Uh, no matter, I don't care if you build it into the ground and it looks like a bunch of garbage laying around and you have basically your entire BOL subsurface. Eventually, two-legged vermin, two-legged rats, which are human beings, uh, bent on destruction will find it. They will steal. And whatever they can't steal, they will destroy because that is the nature of the scum that walk our planet alongside of us. Fortunately for us, I'd say about 2 to 3% only of people are scum. But with 300 million people in the United States and 2% of them being scum, oh, that gives us about 6 million douchebags walking the planet. And sooner or later, one of those 6 million people will find your place and ruin it for you because that's what they do. So the best thing that you can have to protect your location from that type of encroachment is a neighbor with a gun who's not afraid to use it on the end of a dirt road behind a gate with several other houses back there. That will keep a lot of the scum out because they won't really even be able to tell that you're not there because there's activity around the area. His bigger question on safety, though, was things like, how do you keep your place safe from forest fires and things like that? Um, you got to get there regularly, and you got to cut everything around your house. You can't let a big field of uh, nice, tender grass constantly be around your location. Like This may shock you, but as much as I hate products like Monsanto makes, like Roundup, I, I don't use Roundup because I hate Monsanto, but I do use a... Um, a weed kill product uh, to kill uh, the weeds directly around my bug out location. I hate doing it, uh, but I have to do it. And I, I do this for an area of about 10 feet all the way around, all the driveway, uh, the backside, everything. I kill uh, several times a year to make sure that it stays dead because I do not want a grass fire uh, on right on the edges and the outside of my house. Uh, the person also asked about fire retardants, things that you can spray on your house, um, and they asked about one, one product in particular. I don't know anything about that individual product, so I can't comment on it. I can tell you that there are fire retardants. They do work. They are generally worth the investment. I would research any company selling them, but I would have it professionally applied because the way they're applied is as important as what they are. Uh, I believe that to be the case. Um, everything that I've done is research on different fire retardants has, has taught me that to be the case. So I, I have to say it's not something I've done, but it's something I probably should do with my 
remote location. It's probably something I should do right here, and it probably makes sense for any house in America. Um, but, again, everybody has a certain amount of resources, and you have to choose how to spend them and uh, what are the odds of different things happening and what are your priorities and what do you do first. But I do think fire retardants make a great uh, idea. I also think it's important to cut fire breaks around your location, especially if it's remote and you're not going to be there. Um, but, again, this is another reason that I'm big on making sure that if you're going to do the remote location thing and have two locations and you're not going to be there, that uh, you find a place with good neighbors and you have at least one good neighbor with line of sight vision to your house. Uh, because we actually had a forest fire happen right at our bug out location last year. Um, about 80 acres burned. And uh, the community immediately went into action. And the fire department got out there as quickly as possible. They cut a break. They started fighting the fire. They shut it down. They saved every home in the area. Um, the fire got within probably a quarter mile of our house, which isn't that far. Um, but they put it out. And without people there, if we had been the only people in that valley, and without somebody to sound the alarm, um, the whole valley probably would have burned, not just our house. So, again, that's why I'm big on this, you know, having trustworthy neighbors. And it may take a little bit of extra work to find that, but I don't I don't think that the smartest way to be in any bug out scenario anyway is to be so far remote that you never see another human being. I think it makes sense to be in a thinly populated area with people that are relatively self-sufficient and have chosen that lifestyle as well. And I think there's a lot more of it out there um, than people realize. Now, if you go around and ask your neighbors, are you guys survivalists? Are you guys preppers? Uh, when you're considering buying the house, you'll probably get strange looks and most of them probably would tell you no, and they probably don't consider themselves that. But if you go to a remote location and you see everybody with a little garden in a greenhouse and uh, you talk to people about what they do and they take walks up the mountains and everybody hunts and fishes and gardens and some of them make jellies and jams and pick berries and stuff like that, you're in a pretty good place. So that's the best I can do for that one on you. Okay, another guy writes in and he talks about his fireplace and he said that he determined that his fireplace was all but useless for heating his house. That he basically shut off all his heaters and uh, started a fire. And in the room the fireplace was in, it was uh, it was quite warm, and especially right in front of the fireplace. But in the rest of the house, it was cold as hell. And uh, in fact, it got colder uh, than he thinks it would have without the fire. And the truth is, he's probably right. Here's what happens, folks. You start a fire, a fire in a fireplace. What happens is most of the heat goes up the chimney. And a little bit gets radiated out. But all that air going up the chimney so the smoke goes out so that you don't die uh, has to come from somewhere. It comes from your house. So it basically draws air from all the other rooms in your home to feed the chimney and creates an airflow. Now, when you pull air out of a room, it gets colder. Uh, for example, if you took a, a room and you set up a fan in that room, and instead of blowing the fan around the room to circulate the air, you just blew air directly out of the room, the temperature in that room will go down. So when it's cold outside and you start sucking air out of a room, it gets very cold. So you're right. When you have one fireplace in a home, you start a fire, the temperature drops in the other rooms. Uh, Mythbusters even did this and proved it to be true, as though we needed them to do that one. 
Okay, he also asked though, about this uh, fire uh, radiator, uh, fireplace radiator system, which looks pretty damn good. And they sell for about 500 bucks. You want to know what I thought about? I've never tried this product, but looking at it, looking at the video, looking at the, the science behind it, I can't see why it would not work. I think it's something you could probably build something for yourself. Uh, but the thing's probably worth the 500 bucks with the warranty that comes with it and everything. It looks easy to install. And basically what it does is it sucks air in from the room, but instead of sending it up the chimney, it pumps it through um, a, a piece of steel with baffling in it that's all along the backside of your fire, and then it blows it out of vent on the other side of the fireplace. Um, sounds great. My question is how noisy is it? And uh, the reason I ask that is my fireplace in Arkansas has what I consider to be completely useless, a little built-in circulating fan that's supposed to do, again, supposed to do the same thing. And uh, it pushes very little heat from what I can feel. Uh, that's not that big a deal because it does circulate some heat. It's so noisy we don't want to use it. So my biggest question would be the circulating fan that comes with this heat radiator, is it quiet? And I would look for a system uh, that operates maybe the way this one does, but I would look for a quiet system so that you don't mind using it. And I think that something like that absolutely is going to help you. But it's still going to be limited in what it can do to rooms outside of that room. However, please think about it this way as a prepper. If you get into a situation where you can't use the heat because the power's out or what have you, yes, starting that fire in your fireplace may not make your master bedroom warm, but it will make, especially if you shut all the doors, the core of the house warm, and everybody can camp out there and have a place to be warm. That is better than nothing at all. So that's part of what a fireplace is for. But one of these systems seems like a good idea to me. Anybody that's used one would like to comment. I think that would be a great idea. I would recommend a good wood stove or a soapstone stove or a coal stove. Uh, it's a much better alternative for radiant heat in the home. Um, and I'm sure other people would think the same way. The reason this individual asks about this heat exchanger, though, is has the budget for the heat exchanger. It's got enough money to buy it. does not have enough money for a good wood stove. There's a big budgetary difference there. And um, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot more to installing a wood stove than putting a heat exchanger in the back of an existing fire. Fireplace, so um, I think the uh, the wood stove would be a better way to go, or something similar, a soapstone stove, uh, coal stove, what have you. But uh, but I would not turn down the heat exchanger as an option. I think it's a good thing to consider, and uh, probably a good thing for maybe me to look at as well, uh, because we don't get that cold in Arkansas, and a little addition like that may really pay itself back just to uh, keep the place nice and toasty uh, with the plenty of wood that's just laying around waiting to be used instead of uh, turning on the electric heat. Good question. The same person that asked it also asked my opinion on um, buying natural natural gas contract right now. He says he has a contract that he can buy uh, to lock in a rate on natural gas for seven years, and it's at a very low point compared to where it's been in, in the recent past. What do I think of that? Um, if you were going to buy it for two years, I'd say I don't know. That I don't know if we're going to see petroleum products really rebound in the next one to two years. Seven years, I think that's money in the bank, buddy. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you'll definitely get a better return of investment on a seven-year natural a natural gas contract right now than you will on a seven-year CD. Um, 
I, I often say I don't give financial advice, uh, but I don't fear that one. I think that's a solid bet, and uh, you're going to buy the gas anyway. As long as you know you're not going to be, if you're sure you're not going to be moving for those seven years, or if you are, if the contract is transferable, uh, that's one thing to ask about. Um, either of those, I'd say it's a solid bet, and uh, I recommend considering doing it very strongly. I also just noticed something cool, folks. I'm uh, on the uh, North Dallas Tollway now. They've raised the speed limit to 70 miles an hour, so all of a sudden it's uh, it's safe to drive 70. It hasn't been for years and years. What a shock. Anyway, side note there. We've got one more question. Let's knock that out. The last question of the day is um, – actually, that was the last question of the day. Uh, I wrote that down. I just remembered it and uh, brought it in before I looked at it. So that is it. We have knocked out all our questions for today. I hope this has been a good show. Um, I had another long weekend in here. I did the James Stevens show this Saturday. Uh, that's something I wanted to note. If you look at yesterday's show, it's like an hour and 40 minutes long. Uh, but it was actually done Saturday. It was done live. The first hour was done live, and then the last 40 minutes is just me and James. And uh, James Stevens is a great guy with a lot of great information, a lot of great input. I hope you enjoyed that show. And uh, I'm going to try to be a regular guest on his show. Maybe every other month I'll go on and do a guest spot, uh, and that lets you guys call in. And I'm looking at getting to a point where I can start having you guys call in. Uh, I want you to know the future of the Survival Podcast is, is bright. There's a lot going on right now that you guys don't see uh, to make TSP a world-class brand, to make it something that you can be proud to be part of, proud to be a member of, and uh, to always stay true though to the core no matter how successful it becomes and I want you guys to know something if this thing ever really blows up you know blows up to the point where uh, it becomes extreme you know and not just something that I can uh, pay my bills with but creates a big surplus for me uh, Dorothy and I've already talked about it we're going to give the majority of it back uh, we're going to give it back to the prepper community we're going to give it back to the permaculture community we're going to give it to private charities that we know we can trust uh, we're not trying to get rich off of this and uh, that will never be the case. That's that's just not me. Uh, I only need so much. And once I have the security and safety of my family taken care of and the basic lifestyle that I want and the ability to screw off once in a while, drink a beer on a Saturday, and uh, take a couple vacations a year, I don't need any more than that. So um, rest assured that as we, uh, we build this show, uh, the listener will always come first, and our dedication and our loyalty will always be to you, the listener. And uh, I want to thank you guys for something. It's pretty exciting. It will be the 21st, I believe, uh, 22nd or 21st of September. Um, I will be in New York City, and I will be on the uh, show Freedom Watch with Judge Napolitano because of you guys. I think it's going to be a huge boost for the show, and I want to thank you for it. And I want you guys to know, it's probably by or right before Christmas when this is going to become a full-time effort for me. I don't think it's going to be easy to do it then. But I think it's going to be a point where I'm not going to have a choice that there's going to be too much opportunity to make this my full-time initiative, and I'm going to grow too dissatisfied with uh, with everything else anyway. I love doing this show. I love being here to help people. I love putting this information out. I love the interview shows that I've been able to do, where I've, I've actually had four different people on as guests on my show now. I want to do more of that. I love seeing the impact that we're having, not just me, but the 
whole community, the Survival Podcast Forum as a whole, the way that people are working together and helping each other and sharing information. We're planting gardens, people. We're planting trees. We're planting bushes. We're changing America one family at a time. And and that is huge. And it means so much to me to be a part of that and and to be part of the catalyst for that to happen. And I want to see it continue. So I wanted to end with letting you guys know that today. And I give you my pledge. As long as I'm physically able, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be doing this show. And I'm going to be working hard to give you what you ask for. Sometimes I'm going to screw that up. Sometimes I'm going to make mistakes. Sometimes I'm going to say things that are going to anger you and make you upset. Sometimes I'm going to say things that are really going to anger you, but maybe they're going to make you think. Sometimes I'll do good. Sometimes I'm not. I'm not going to do good. Sometimes I'm going to make mistakes. All right? And when I make mistakes, I'll try to admit them. All right? But one thing I will never do is stop working really hard to do the things that I think are the right things to help you develop that better life, no matter what happens. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter. Get spent